Hello and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today we have episode one of a two-part series for you all about Motown. So sit back, relax, and let's talk Motown. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shedler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. I'm so excited about today. I am literally bouncing in my seat here. <laughs> um, I We kind of broke this up a little bit different. Um, we're, we're going to go through today just the history and some of the songwriters out of Motown. And I just could not cut back things, so that's why it had to roll into two episodes. Dan, you must be excited for this episode, just like us. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, how many people grew up listening to these songs, you know, watching that label with the big M turning around and around on my turntable as a kid. I mean, it was just um, so many fond memories and what a class act. I mean, this sound that we're talking about was really a movement and it represented so much about social things that were happening, about artistic things that were happening, about creative people and artistry and uh, the civil rights movement was, I mean, just, I mean, it embodied so many elements of culture and music. And the acts were so slick, right? I mean, they all looked wonderful. I mean, the women were dressed in gowns and the men were in suits and they had all the right moves and the choreography and who didn't want to be Marvin Gaye? Who who didn't want to date, you know, the Supremes? I mean, it was just one of those things where you were just in, it engulfed you. And I was engulfed at a young age for sure. And one of the things that we're going to talk about a little bit later on, but while we're on the subject, is while that record was spinning around, the 45s that my uncle owned that I would borrow and listen to at home in my dark room, uh, just trying to picture who these people were and what they looked like and these wonderful lyrics, there were three names that on the 45 goes by fast, Holland, Dozier, and Holland. And I just idolized those guys without really knowing that much about them. And to think that over the years, thanks to Nam, we I've been able to interview all three of them is you know something I'll always cherish. So today we get to brag a little bit about that. We get to brag a little bit about some of the other amazing people that we're going to be hearing from that represent our podcast as we pay tribute to Motown. Mike, maybe you can read to us the list of folks we're going to be listening to over the next couple of podcasts. Sure. Yeah, we've definitely got a stacked list and quite a few people we're going to be hearing from. Um, And that will be uh, Bob Olson, Lamont Dozier, Allie Willis, Holland Brothers, Jack Ashford, Phil Rainlin, Tony Bon Jovi, and I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so definitely a who's who of Motown for this podcast. 
and I think we should just jump right into it. So, Michelle, where are we starting? We are starting with the history of Motown. Like I said before, I just couldn't break it up enough that I could fit all this into one. So today it's going to be history and songwriting. Awesome. And we're going to start with a little bit of history from Bob Olson and Lamont Dozer. Well, the thing people don't understand about Motown is that it was a management and publishing company that had its own label. It was all about management and that meant it was all about getting hit records no matter what the cost to launch the artist's career. And so, uh, well, it was that. And the other thing is, I think somebody told me that a top 10 record probably covered about one month's company overhead. <laughs> so you, and so you had that problem. The other problem you had was well, the brilliant thing about Motown was that Barry Gordy had started out owning a record store. And, and so he knew that no rec the record stores basically lost money all year round except for December. And then they made it back in whatever profit they were going to make at Christmas. Hmm. So, the way, so the way it worked was a record store never paid for anything never paid their bills to record labels unless they needed another record from the label. And so basically the only way we could get paid is we had to have another hit. <laughs> and I mean, it was pretty much that way for everybody, but, but with the majors, of course, they always had another hit, so they would get paid. But for the indies, it, it, it was both in terms of the company overhead and in terms of collections, it was critical that we have a constant string of hit records. <laughs> that's crazy. And that's just how it worked. <laughs> so what about year did you uh, start there? So I began in 1965. Wow. Right, they were at their peak. I mean, the charts were, there was us and the Beatles dominant and, and then a few other things. I mean, it, it was mind-boggling. And, and it was mind-boggling because I didn't even know who the heck they were. I went in there cold turkey. My interest had mostly been in classical music and jazz. I hit it off of everybody because they were all jazz fans. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, another definition you could have of Motown, it was what is the jazz fan's answer to how to make a living in music? <laughs> very knowledgeable and so forth. Well, I should tell you a little of what I've pieced together of the history of the company. It may not be, I mean, I don't know that it's totally accurate. I've pieced it together from conversations with various people. But what happened was Barry Gordy came out of the Army, came out, he served in Korea, came out of the Army, and he and Marv Johnson, a friend of his, decided to open a j jazz record store. They were both bebop fans, and so they opened something called the 3D Record Mart that was a jazz specialty store. And this was 55, 56, 57, somewhere in there. And 
uh, the world at that time, the major labels didn't really want any part of jazz. They didn't really want that much of a part of rock and roll. They didn't want, a, they didn't want R&B, they didn't want country. So it was a time of, of small independent labels doing these genres that they'd given up on because Wall Street was telling them that records and movies and radio were all going away to be replaced by television. We're hearing the same kind of crap now. <laughs> but anyway, this, this created a great opportunity for independence. A lot of, ultimately a lot of people left the majors to start their own distribution companies. Fans started record stores. Loft parties turned into clubs. It, the, the 50s was a very vibrant time for music because Madison Avenue was utterly uninterested. <laughs> and so, so you had this incredible garden that they were growing artists in. And, and anyway, Barry Gordy fit into this. He op opened this jazz record store. His customers were all of the top musicians in Detroit. So he created all those relationships. He had relationships with all of the record distributors from the various labels. And he had relationships with a number of artist managers. Hmm. And that group of relationships is what created Motown. <laughs> anyway, so the record store goes bankrupt after a year. <laughs> and meanwhile, his sister was working for Jackie Wilson's manager, and Jackie Wilson had recently switched over from doing all gospel to trying to do some pop. And anything, one thing led to another, and Barry wound up with an opportunity to pitch songs to Jackie Wilson. And by the time it was over, he had done Lonely Teardrops and Reet Petit and produced them in Chicago, Brunswick, monster hits. He was the hottest producer in Chicago. <laughs> but he lived in Detroit. But of course, Nashville was also really a, a, a subsidiary of the Chicago record business at that time mm. because the industry was centered in Chicago because they'd figured out the Lake Michigan pure white sand was an integral part of the shellac records. And they figured out it was cheaper to manufacture the records in the Chicago area and ship them out than to ship the sand elsewhere in the country and then ship the records. <laughs> so all of the majors and most of the indies were, were based in Chicago. And plus you had this incredible bunch of musicians in Chicago because CBS and NBC were in Chicago. So there was lots of advertising work, lots of radio work. Records were not played on the air. That took a Supreme Court ruling, a charming Supreme Court ruling that cost us our royalties and 
everything else in the late 40s. But anyway, the point is there was a ton of work for musicians in, in Chicago, plus the labels, plus, plus anybody that could pass a literacy test was getting the hell out of the South if they were black. And they'd come to Memphis and then Chicago. And so you had Memphis and Nashville kind of feeding Chicago. That's kind of the context that Motown came from. And Barry knew all these people. And he was originally, his first deal, he did a, a record on Marv Johnson. Came out on 20th, no, United Artists it came out on. When all was said and done, he got back a check for 100 bucks, and it had been a top 10 record. <laughs> and at that point, they all kind of looked at each other and went, no, this isn't going to work. <laughs> and at that point, the idea of starting a record label became an idea. And his first artist to his own label, which was called Tamla, which was named after his children's first names, First artist was Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, or the Miracles. And uh, he had a, he had learned that you didn't have to completely sell everything to a label. So he had a master lease deal with Chess Records on Smokey's Records. And it included the ability to buy back the record. And Ultimately, Shop Around started climbing the charts, and he went to a guy named Barney Ailes, who had originally been the capital distributor, but had set up his own distribution company. And a bunch of his buddies from other major labels had set up their own regional distribution companies. And so they were able to put together the money to buy Shop Around back from Chess and launch Tamla as a national label distributed by all of these guys that had put up the money to buy the master back and the whole mm. thing. And from what I gather, that's how Motown was launched. Wow. Which, and I also utterly believe Barry Gordy is the smartest man to ever go into the record business. And my experience with other labels has been one face palm after another. Why are you doing that? That's stupid. <laughs> but I had no idea what I had learned just being a fly on the wall here. So when you got there, was it the same studio or had they moved? It was the same studio, which was a, uh, well, the original, what he had originally done was his sister had a studio in her basement with an old broadcast board and a few mics. And he had started out having his musician friends come in on Sunday afternoons and he'd pay them five bucks for their trouble. And, and they would bang, he quickly learned that he didn't have singers that could keep up with the musicians. So they would bang out backing tracks and then he'd take those tracks to either United Sound or Special Recordings in Detroit, who were the two big advertising studios. And they would do a straight overdub where they'd play the mono backing track back and the person would 
would come out of the speaker in the studio, the person would sing, and then they would record a mix of the microphone and the backing track onto a second tape recorder. Mm. And they quickly figured out that they could splice together takes, because they were all the same except for this vocal. And so they, uh, they did that originally. And Barry ultimately wanted to have his own studio and we did some recording in Chicago too when he got some, wanted to do something, but he, he wanted to have his own studio and a photography studio came up for sale right in the advertising district of Detroit, which would be very convenient to the musicians. And that's what became Hitsville. But it is not when they talk about the dirt floor of that had to have been his sister's basement <laughs> because, because Hitsville had a soft pine floor for spiking tripods and lights. Very nicely set up for that. And then by the time I got there, the wall treatment and all of that had been provided to us by RCA because they were selling more of our records than they were of their own. <laughs> Which is pretty wild. No doubt. <laughs> and so, so they gave us a studio design and they totally lucked out on how quiet that room was. But the, the studio design was absolutely brilliant. The reflected sound off the walls had a flat frequency response. And so if there was any bleed between the mics, it just sounded great. <laughs> and I, most of us had no idea how good that studio was until we went elsewhere. <laughs> Motown was, a, was a, a good school for us, you know, and, and for me. Uh, it was college for everybody that wanted to learn uh, the skills or have, uh, of learning the, the ins and outs of music, you know, and writing and developing music. It was like uh, the, best, the best place to be, I think. It was like going to college, you know, for music. Uh, a lot of people came back from all over the world, you know, the uh, Beatles, Bob Dylan, uh, oh, God, Tom Jones. I mean, di different people that would just stroll in, and they were, like, shocked to see there was just this little house. They were expecting to see some glamorized, uh, something they had placed in their own minds about what this place must look like. But when they saw there was just some little old house, and it was like uh, the den uh, of uh, uh, where we cut the songs, we turned it into a studio. And uh, we buried a house that Barry bought, his first house or something like that, and turned it into a, a business, you know. And that's uh, the history of it. <laughs> so cool to hear these guys talking about the early days of Motown and just really the the idea behind it, you know, um, Mr. Gordy's philosophy on what he was hoping to accomplish, you know, as a music fan himself growing up and listening to other recordings and bands live in his neighborhood, he wanted to perpetuate that and do so in a way that was meaningful to his neighborhood. And, you know, I often think about um, where Hitsville is located in, in um, Detroit and how in just six blocks there was Stevie 
and Smokey and Marvin Gaye and Diana Ross, they all grew up in that. Wouldn't it be interesting to think if he was seven blocks away the other direction? <laughs> <laughs> what would have happened then? <laughs> I mean, he just was able to cultivate. And oh my goodness, how did I forget Aretha? Yep. I mean, all in yep. that one area. Just absolutely amazing, amazing, amazing. And that is uh, really a reflection on his talent and mm. what his contributions were. And overlooked in addition to producing and and cultivating all of this sound and this culture, he also was a songwriter and really helped begin what became the Motown sound by developing something new, not just covering old songs, which a lot of labels, especially young labels early on, did a lot of covers of other music, uh, other recordings. Sun started out that way. Uh, Atlanta started out that way. A lot of labels started that way, but Motown did not. And he really, from the very beginning said, we're going to own this. We're going to do something different. It's going to be ours. And as a result, he started writing for Jackie Wilson. And of course, uh, their biggest hits came from the early hits came from Smokey, who wrote his own song. So, I mean, that I think is a very important element of the early momentum that the sound developed on its own. And then, of course, you had the Holland Brothers and others coming around later and really adding that own voice and perpetuating that. So do you think that's why, because I know a lot of people always say there was something in the water in Motown, that right. just they were, something different was going on there that wasn't happening in other places. Do you think that that whole thing of them not really doing covers and writing their own stuff from the beginning had a lot to do with that, uh, them having their own sound? Well, they had to stick out above the rest. I mean, what we forget now is that independent record labels were very plentiful during the early 60s, late 50s. I mean, there were hundreds of them in mm. this country. I mean, just about every big town had at least one or two independent labels. So they had to do something that was different and unique. And I think uh, I've heard Barry uh, Gordy talk many times about it's about the song. Mm, you know, start right. with the song. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly what happened here. By the way, the very first person to record and have a contract was Dr. Mabel John, who is also in the oral history program here at NAB. <laughs> uh, she didn't talk too much about Motown during her interview, which is why uh, she's not part of today's podcast, but a shout out to her. Uh, love her and love all the work that she's doing. She's one of the most encouraging people on the planet and doing wonderful things in the Los Angeles area to encourage music makers. Um, also, a good time to do a little shout out to the tag for Motown because there are several other people that we interviewed that we aren't going to be listening to today. Um, so, Mike, I wonder if you could tell people how to get to that tag. Of course. You just head over to nam.org. That's N-A-M-M dot org slash library. And click on advanced search, and then you can search there through all of our tags, including Motown. Or if you find a particular interview web clip that you like, you can scroll to the bottom and see all the tags associated with it there. Click on it and it will show you all of the other interviews associated with that tag. Awesome. So we've been talking about songwriting. Is this our next segment? It is, yes. Um, as you said, a lot of original things came out of Motown, just a, quite a unique sound, even a unique building. Um, so. What we're actually going to be listening to next is just a couple songwriters out of Motown and one of the most famous trios in songwriting. <laughs> um, 
Holland Dozier Holland, and you'll hear a little bit from Allie Willis. So let's start by talking about Allie Willis a little bit, because that is a name that some people may know, some people might not know, but I'm sure plenty know the work that she's done. Yes. uh, Allie grew up in the Detroit area and listened to Motown as it was developing as a young lady and thinking as an artist, um, painter mostly, hey, I can probably contribute as a songwriter. And that encouragement of listening to all those sounds allowed her accessibility to write music, and she did. She, I think, most famously was first um, collaborating with the folks over at Earth, Wind, and Fire and created a song called uh, September. (laughs) (laughs) You may know the one. You may know that that little ditty, (laughs) Boogie Wonderland, and an amazing career. We won't do her justice by just naming a couple of her hits because there's so much behind her and her feelings and her emotions and her um, almost, I don't know, instinct to contribute and to encourage other artists, songwriters, as well as performers, as well as painters. Uh, She's a really fantastic person. Um, She also had a couple of uh, other iconic uh, hits, one of which was the television theme song for Friends. So uh, (laughs) it's like she never really stopped and she's still going and an amazing person. So when uh, we got the chance to interview her, which was last year, 2018, she um, was more than happy to talk about Motown. Awesome. So let's hear Allie talking about uh, what it was like working with Lamont Dozier, Holland Brothers, and other favorite songwriters of hers. First of all, I have written with Lamont Dozier, and it's very hard for me to write with him because he puts his hand on the keyboard and I'm like screaming. You know, all he has to do is bam, and I'm like, oh my God. So, um, Holland and Do- Holland Dozier Holland without question because the Motown acts would put out full albums of just their songs like the Supremes sing Holland Dozier Holland um, but every one of those songwriting teams for a very different reason I loved Holland Dozier Holland probably at the top just because of the sheer number of hits they had. It was, you know, they had five, six things on the top ten at the same time. Um, Norman Whitfield killed me. That was an entirely different approach um, to songs and very uh, social conscious. Uh, Smokey Robinson I loved. Uh, His songs really varied from each other. Ashford and Simpson. Um, Uh don't have enough to say. Plus, they were both spectacular people. Um, yeah, together and separate. Right? Oh, my yeah. God, yeah. But but really, uh, those were probably my favorites of the Motown writers, but um, anything that came out of there, it was rare that I didn't like a song. So I would say, you know, I have a... I'm pretty clear on which songwriters in general influence me the most certainly who my favorites were, um, but they're all in that, you know, every, every single one of them. So once again, that was Allie Willis, and if you're interested more in her career, I highly suggest you head over to the NAM website and check out her full interview, which is posted over there, where she talks about her entire career, her childhood, and what she's up to now. 
Fantastic. Thank you. I'm really grateful that we have the opportunity. I was just reflecting on um, a little conversation we had before the microphones were turned on about, okay, let's pick our favorite Motown song. And we're all like, no. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as soon as I thought of, well, Tears of a Clown came first, and I thought, I mean, that's always been so such a great song for me but then I thought well now you're starting to talk about Smokey and you know, what he's written okay so my girl and you know and all of a sudden well it's and then like... you have to compare all these artists too it's right. like okay which one like exactly those <laughs> are my favorite better? for him yeah. now my favorite for right. Marvin or through the grapevine and my favorite with Martha and the Vandellas of course is Heat Wave and my favorite with <laughs> so on and on and on it goes and of course, that's why this is such an exciting podcast and talking about the songwriters. Um, Lamont Dozier, of course, the middle of the three, Holland Dozier and Holland. Um, I, I don't know. It's almost impossible to talk too much about them without wanting to at least list some of their songs. Um, the list is actually quite long. Um, just talking about the songs that they wrote that hit the top 100 is like six pages long on Wikipedia. It's just like crazy. I, I wrote a few down uh, because I didn't want to forget. I think really they're, the three of them hit their stride um, with Martha and the Vandellas and Heatwave and showed their diversity by writing things like, um, can I get a witness for Marvin Gaye? Mm. But then, as I, as I understand it, were introduced to Diana Ross and the Supremes and they were looking for material and they had written a few things uh, for them. But when, uh, when they heard the Supremes sing, Where Did Our Love Go? that they wrote, I remember uh, Lamont saying that we just knew. It was like a light bulb. It's like there was a, the way he said it was, there was a dark room and then all of a sudden <laughs> there was light. And wow. I think that was the feeling that all three of them had about connecting with the artist. And again, we're talking about what made Motown unique. The songwriters were right there. They weren't at the Brill Building in New York, nothing against that, but you know, they weren't far away. They were right there. They were their neighbors. They grew up with them. They, you know, they had Sunday dinner together and they represented that culture together. So when they connected, it wasn't just, oh, okay, here, I'll fax you my song. <laughs> it's, you know, being there and saying, oh, okay, hey, how about if we changed the lyric? You're having a hard time saying those three words together. You know, it was that yeah. sort of intimate, you know, connection. So Baby Love came and then um, Come See About Me, Stop in the Name of Love. I mean, what? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm rambling these as if, you know, it's a grocery list, but this are, these are hits. Yeah. These, are, these are things that sort of, I won't quite say changed the world, but for a lot of people, this was their introduction to rhythm and blues to soul music to things that you know outside of their culture if you grew up in minnesota as i did i wasn't exposed to the same neighborhood of detroit until i listened to motown and i think those are the compelling elements that drew people to that is that and it wasn't what's interesting to me is we always talk about songwriting and making sure it's relatable to a person Motown had this great way of doing it where I didn't relate and I still loved it. You yeah. know, I didn't really know. I didn't have clothes like that. I didn't have boots that were that shiny. I mean, my <laughs> God, the Temptations <laughs> look so awesome. I didn't look like that. I didn't relate like that. But 
I was enthralled, mm-hmm. I, you know, and so it was just an amazing experience, I think, what they were able to do to connect to each other. Back in my arms again, by the way, got to mention that with the Supremes. These, by the way, are all just the number ones. Um, I can't help myself for tops. Another one with the uh, tops is uh, reach out and I'll be there. You can't hurry love with the Supremes again. Uh, you keep me hanging on, of course. Uh, Love is here and now you're gone. Another number one with the Supremes, The Happening, one of their later hits. And then I was thinking there was a couple of other songs that the um, Holland Dozier and Holland wrote that were definitive for a career like Band of Gold. It wasn't a number one hit, but that was that was a big changing point in their career. Like. Um, I'm thinking of the uh, the chairman of the board. You know, when they got together and sang a song, it was um, "Give me just a little more time," and that was that defined their whole career. Mm. And it wasn't even a number one hit. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So we're, we're only talking about the number one hits. We're not being very fair to the fact that the number twos and the fours and the sixes yeah. were also career defining for some artists. Right. It just, you know, uh, unbelievable output as far as I'm concerned. And now I'll tell you that meeting all three of them, I just felt like they were friends. You know, they're very nice people. They never got too uppity or, and I feel the same way about Smokey. I mean, here's a guy who rewrote, you know, the way we listen to music almost. And yet he's the nicest guy. And I felt the same way about the three guys, you know, the and Allie, and just about everybody we're talking about today. And I think that element is very important. And I want to have a shout out to uh, Mr. Gordy's family, who also played a very big role in this. We didn't mention this, but I think we should. His sister, his aunt, there was a nurturing element to Motown that Mr. Gordy, being the businessman, knew was important, but that wasn't his gig. You know, he was too busy doing contracts and figuring out logistics. And and I'm sure nurturing in his way, but to bring on these other people who had maternal qualities of them, like his sister, is, um, I think, a very important element. Most of these artists that we're talking about, the Supremes, Marvin Gaye, Smokey, they all started when they were in their late teens, early 20s. So having somebody who made sure they had the peanut butter sandwich between (laughs) takes and, you know, um, wanted to talk about, you know, boy troubles or whatever with them, I think was something that endeared these artists and wanted, it made them want to be there and participate and not just, okay, I'm going to do this thing and then leave. And that's that feeling that Allie was talking about, about what is represented in that building of Hitsville is that love mm-hmm. and, and that sincerity. And I think that's a very, very important element of what we didn't hear but was heard. Yeah, I mean, it all makes sense when you're explaining it like this, Dan. It's like they they were, they were all a family. Like, they all lived near each other. They all wrote together. They all performed it together and recorded it. And, it, you know, it, it's that's why the songs were the way they were. It's You, you just hear the song, and it's kind of like, wow, this is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. How did this come? But you don't see the people behind it and how close they are together and how they're doing everything together and talking and living close to each other and just all getting along. And that definitely makes that Motown sound. Very cool. So 
popping in from that, I <laughs> I think it's kind of great again that it is at the recording studio is actually a house because it it is a home mm. and it was their home and it was you right. know just a place everyone could come and go and be creative and it's just awesome. Um, so next you're actually going to hear from that famous trio, the Holland Dozier Holland. Yeah. So first up, we're going to hear from Lamont and he's going to be talking about how he got into songwriting and then signing with Motown, starting to work with the Holland Brothers. When do you suppose you were starting to put the, together the idea that you can express your own feelings through, through music and, and words? Mm. That was, I guess, when I wrote a poem called A Song when I was about 11 years old and I was going to um, uh, elementary school uh, right outside the uh, housing project, the Jeffrey Project, where my mother and my, my siblings eventually moved to. But uh, Poe Elementary uh, was the name of the, uh, the school. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe Elementary. It was, that's apropos. <laughs> the corner phrase. No, but, but, uh, but in there, I met this woman, or I should say my um, homeroom teacher and English teacher as well, Edith Burke. She was very influential in getting me started in writing uh, lyrics by accepting this poem that I had wrote called A Song uh, and putting it on, on the blackboard. And she kept it on there for, oh, at least a month. And there was enough uh, uh, influence that, that influenced me to the point that I wanted to please. So, you know, when you're a child, you're always trying to impress your parents or somebody that you uh, respect. In this case, she put this poem, and nobody had anything that she thought was uh, better than this poem. That's why she kept it on the blackboard for so long. She thought it was poignant and and had a lot of things to say about uh, the coming together of of people uh, around the world, coming together through music, you know, and and how songs uh, and music sort of like uh, uh, is the glue that bring people together around the world. And uh, uh, no matter if, if they didn't understand the lyrics, they still were drawn by the, the feeling of it, you know. And she thought that was very poignant of me to, to like to grasp this type of thing. She said, how did you come up with it? I said, that's how I feel, you know. I feel that that's what music is since I listen to it all the time. And I just gathered these ideas about music and what it does to people, you know. Uh, going to uh, uh, the Paradise Theater comes to mind. My father took me to go see this extravaganza, as I, said, I guess they would call it, a musical extravaganza. And uh, uh, there was Billy Eckstein, and well, of course, we were way up in the nosebleed section. <laughs> And uh, they had Billy Eckstein, Sarah Vaughn, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, and uh, uh, Count Basie was playing and uh, the orchestra. And I was, and I, I guess I had to be about five or six years old and watching the people. And it was on a Friday night. People had just gotten paid, you know. They said the eagle fires on Friday, you know. <laughs> so we were... Uh, all enjoying ourselves, and, and I was more or less studying the people, and they were stomping their feet and in the aisles and laughing, crying. It, it all depends on the music, you know, the, where the, mu- the mood of the music took them, you know. And I was just watching the people, and I said, God, boy, what a 
What a force. Music, you know. How can something like this uh, make people feel like this? They were happy. They were sad. They were laughing. I mean, they were, they were just enjoying themselves on their feet, sitting down, you know, whatever the, they wanted to do. The music, like, led the way, you know. Uh, and uh, I, I, I kind of leaned over to my father, I remember. And I said, you know, Dad, one day I'd like to make people feel like that because I was always watching their feet, and they were just stomp. And I, at first I couldn't figure, was something in, did they take something to, to stomp like this to make them all jump up and down? And I'm just looking interesting. And then I realized that it was from the force of the music you know, that was driving this this thing that was made, this frenzy that these people were in, in. And I said, God, that's a powerful thing. I'd like to have a, a little of that myself. <laughs> I'll learn how to do that one day. You know what I mean? And that's basically what was instilled in me. And when I got there, I met up with Brian Holland, who was one of the writers and producers of Please, Mr. Postman. And uh, we became a team. And then shortly thereafter, uh, his brother, Eddie Holland, who used to sing the demos for Jackie Wilson when, when, when Barry was writing those songs for him. And he decided that he wanted to stop singing because he just didn't like entertaining or being on stage. So he'd rather be in the background. So he said, Lamont, you and Brian are writing this stuff, but I, I see that you, t- you write, although you write music and lyrics, it, t- it takes you the longest to write the lyrics. So why don't we do this, form a, a trio and we just have a, a situation where you start the ideas and give them to me, and I'll finish them off. And, and then the, uh, you and Brian can get back to uh, producing some other songs. Brian was a recording engineer, too. So we were a factory within a factory, so to say. And we were able to get out uh, more songs at place with the artists and everything. And then we became, out of, I guess, 10 writers and producers there, we became uh, Barry's number one writing team over there. Because a lot of the people wrote in teams, or they wrote by themselves. In this particular case, we, uh, we got very, we were very blessed, and we came up with a system and a sound and thing of our own. Uh, and it became very popular, and uh, uh, Holland Doja Holland was the... the the thing of the 60s, the producers and writers of the 60s at Motown and around the world. So that started, uh, started everything for me right there. And then uh, we were together from 62 to uh, 72, and then I went out on my own. That's when you heard uh, Fish Ain't Biting and those things. I, was, uh, I had just moved out here and signed up with ABC Dunhill as a soloist, and I was by myself out here on my own was the name of that first album. Sold a couple of million copies, and uh, we were very thrilled about that, and that put me on a whole nother path. You know? Yeah, That's fantastic. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting to me is there's not too many examples of a songwriting team of three. Yeah, no. Not too many. Not too many. In New York, the Brill Building... Uh, I don't know, there may be one or two people, but basically there were du- uh, duo uh, uh, or collaborations. Like well, because one would take the words, right? One they would take, take the music, music yeah. And, so and how did you figure out this formula well, to share that? Eddie came up with that idea because he figured that since I wrote lyrics and melodies, and Brian wrote melodies, uh, 
if I had some of the pressure off of me, because it's always it, for me, it t- always took me longer to write lyrics because I was just always very meticulous about what I was saying and what I wanted to say, the message I wanted to uh, get across, you know, so I was very picky about it. So he said, let me handle that. You give me the story idea and the idea and give it to me while you and Brian start working on some other thing. So it was like an assembly line of our own that we, you know, dreamed up. And so he was right in that respect. And so we would move. It was just moved that way. He would finish off the lyric once he had all of the information about the song. Brian and I would had worked out the track and did the tracks in, in the room. Head arrangements, we call them, just with a chord sheet, and and, and really uh, begin to tell the musician what to play and how, and if we had any significant melodies and counter lines, we'd tell them that too, and sing it to them or play it on the piano for. Them. But uh, while Eddie was writing, finished off the lyric and getting ready to teach the artists, and while we were turning them out in the studio the next batch to be uh, uh, worked on, you know. So that's how we did it. And uh, the trio became uh, famous for that, that that particular way of writing. We were able to get out more stuff and uh, became uh, very, very uh, uh, successful at it, I guess you might say. And uh, I guess one of the probably... Uh, the only trio uh, 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 that I think that ever accomplished what we were able to accomplish during that time, you know. Yeah, some people have described it as you guys almost became one person, sort of. A yeah, person. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> and that was really something to that because we almost thought, felt alike. You know, I'd be sitting and thinking of something, and Brian be thinking of something, and at the same time, why don't we go? It was, it was like. It was almost simultaneous that we would see and hear and feel the same thing. So in that in that way, we were like one, you know, the three of us, and we were able to get a lot of things done by being so in tune with each other, you know. And I've always been sort of curious. I mean, for example, almost every number one hit of the Supremes you guys wrote mm-hmm. was. Did you write specifically for them? Well, after uh, you know, uh, after. Let me see the first song, uh, "Word I Love Go." I came up with, and um, and uh, they didn't like it. And uh, actually, I did the song for uh, the Marvelettes, and they really didn't like it and didn't want to do it. So they were a group that was, had a little notoriety. So they were able to say no, and I had to find somebody else. Then I had already cut the track, and that that created some some problems for me because it was in a different key for Diane. Mm. And finally we settled that out and uh, worked that out where she would just have to sing it in a lower key, but it gave her another sultry type of sound for this song. And although she didn't like the song, nothing again, and Mary and Flo didn't either. They thought it was some hand-me-down stuff that because they heard about the, the Marvelous refusing to do it. Uh, and so they were low on the totem pole, so to speak, uh, uh, on the list of artists. And they were called the no-hit Supremes, you know, and the rest of the artists would tease them and say these things about them. So that didn't make them feel too good. So now I give them this song that sounds like it's the worst song that ever was written or something, you know, <laughs> in their minds. 
So we had some words, and in the studio tonight that we finally got them to sing uh, the song. And uh, lo and behold, uh, Barry heard it and liked it. He said, I, th- I think this might be a little something. Let's just put it out and see what happens. They put it out about a week or so, 10 days later, and the record is wham, bam, our number one. That was where our love go. And, and then we, he came running and he said, man, whatever y'all did on that last one, <laughs> do it again. You know, that, that, that formula that you got, you stick to it, the baby, baby stuff, you know. <laughs> I said, okay, I got you. And we went in and we started doing it. The next one was called Baby Love. Baby Love, my baby, you know, and it's just, we just continue. And we had 13 consecutive number ones on the Supreme. That's why they, they got so big and, uh, and made history, actually, you know. For, uh, and, uh, and then while that was happening, we were still working with the Four Tops that, bam, they hit in 64 with uh, Baby I Need Your Loving. And then it went from that to Reach Out I'll Be There and one thing after the, you know, this uh, reach out, I mean, this about seven to ten, seven to uh, about, yeah, about seven top tens mm-hmm. uh, within the next six months, too, uh, 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 within the couple, next couple of years. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was just a lot. And then I had to, still had the things happening with Martha and the Vandellas that was just crazy, you know what I mean? And uh, uh, every now and then, uh, uh, a stray song <laughs> for some artists. Even did one on uh, uh, a Smokey who was needed some stuff because he was on the road all the time and didn't have time to, to do something. So he heard me playing this song. Lum de lum de lie. He said, what are you going to do with that? Said, it's yours if you want it. You know what I mean? And that was Mickey's Monkey where it became a top five song. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So all of those little things, you know, this. It was amazing, you know. I wanted to ask you a lot. What exactly is a Mickey's Monkey, anyway? Nothing. It just, a, <laughs> it just had a certain kind of rhythm to it, Mickey's Monkey. You know, there's something about it. had like, it kind of rolls off your tongue. So I sound like, I felt that it could be a dance song. And he's in, lam de lam de la And it had that kind of feel of the old hand jive, woolly in the hand jive. Dump, 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 dump. Well, that's all it was. It was just a, a dance, a little feel-good dance song. And uh, it just happened to work with Mickey's Monkey and that idea about this cat named Mickey coming into town showing a new dad spreading it around. You know, just fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. fun. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's part of what I think the magic of what you were able to do is con- convey that fun. Yeah, right? yeah. Feel good music, we yeah. call it. Just feel good music. Yeah. And and then a lot of it was, and then the other part, if it wasn't fun, it was about love, you know, mm-hmm. unrequited love or whatever. It was just love and and uh, how people go through things when they're in love and how they try to try to uh, survive yeah. <laughs> after having a heartbreak, you know what I mean? Uh, but those things all worked out, and uh, people. Uh, Seemed to to gravitate to it because it was something they can identify with, you know. And what was it like uh, writing for Marvin Gaye? Marvin was uh, he was a good friend, a running buddy, because we met at Anna Records when he came to town. He was with the Harvey Fuqua, and he was with the Moonglows, and Harvey was Harvey and the Moonglows then. 
and, and they came to town, and uh, uh, Marvin uh, had a relationship with Anna Gordy, and, uh, and Harvey had a relationship with Gwen Gordy, you know what I mean? So anyway, we became very tight, uh, Marvin and I, and talking about different things. Uh, and we used to sit in the studio and do little rudiments and things on the drums and show each other chords and, and singing licks and do all of that while we were there, waiting for something to happen with our careers. Uh, Marvin eventually wind up signing with Barry, who, as you know, was, has started doing some good things with uh, Miracles and Marvelettes. And so he signed Marvin. And uh, But working with Marvin was sort of hectic sometimes because Marvin had his own way of doing things, uh, wanted to do his own. But uh, he was very... He would get perturbed by the keys. If the keys were not comfortable for him, uh, then uh, he would get perturbed by that. But we had an idea, uh, uh, the Hollins and I, that Marvin sounded very good when he had to uh, work, when the key was a little higher for him, and he had to maneuver around areas that he didn't like to sing. You know, it was, it was a lot of work trying to, to develop some kind of new structure or new sound. And he was good at that. When you force him to, to work for it and having the key a little bit out of his range, then he would shine like he did on uh, How Sweet It Is. He went up into his set a little bit and had ways of, uh, after he got through cussing us out, you know what I mean? <laughs> he would go in the studio and then he would sing and come up with some stuff that we never even thought of as far as the, the performance, you know. Mm-hmm. He was great at that. He was he was one of a kind. Yep. You did several things with him. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Baby, Don't You Do It uh, was a... Uh, Baby, Don't You Do It, a song about Don't Break My Heart, one of those type of things. Yeah. And what else was there? Uh, Baby, Don't You Do It... Uh, God, I just slipped my mind, but it was it was about like four or five yeah. things that we did uh, that were uh, all big sellers, you know. And uh, uh, working with him is just was just a lot of fun, you know. But I guess the the biggest fun that I had was with the tops. The tops just made it really like it was a party, you know what I mean? These guys, because they they were professionals, they'd been out on the road on Billy Eckstein when they were teenagers, you know. They used to back Billy Eckstein. And they were the, the number one group in Detroit. Everybody aspired. If we had a vocal group, everybody aspired to be the four tops, you know, because they were like the guy, the doo-wop group uh, to be like, if he was going to be like anybody, you know, because they were with, uh, in Vegas with Billy Eckstein, and, and to go to Vegas with Billy Eckstein, that, that's the pinnacle, you know, as far as we were concerned, uh, the doo-wop guys, <laughs> you know. And uh, when we got the opportunity to work with them, uh, it took us uh, about a year to get the ball rolling with them. But then we, when we did, we, we hit, a, we hit the, with the right song, I believe, Baby, I Need Your Loving, that first big hit. And then the rest is, like they say, history. Then they started rolling. We started rolling it out one by the, you know, uh, Sugar Pie, Honey Buns, you know, and uh, it's the same old song. And, Reach out, I'll be there. Burn blah, 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 that, And, you know, it just, the hits kept coming, as they say, you know. 
And we were very fortunate to be on a roll with all of these people, Martha and the Vandellas as well, in a heat wave and, oh, just a bunch of things, you know, on her. Was there ever an opportunity where you thought this song was better suited for somebody else even though you wrote it for one particular group? Or Not you really. You know, what happened was they did the songs anyway. Eventually, uh, Barry was suggested, why don't you do, uh, if, if there was some room on somebody else's album, why don't have have uh, so-and-so do their take on uh, the Supremes thing? You know, so, you know, that's how we would do. So a lot of, they would do each other's songs in various albums, you know, uh, uh, with a different type of take, you know what I mean? Uh, like Gladys Knight and yeah. did uh, Heard It Through the Grapevine. And Marvin had Heard It Through the Grapevine, but, but two different uh, performances, you know. And also, it was good for the publishing company, too, I imagine. <laughs> so that was Lamont. Um, next, you're going to hear from Brian and Eddie Holland. What happened is I started singing first, you know, and I was about 18 and a half. So I was singing, and um, uh, through that, I met Barry Gordy. And Barry Gordy at that time was a, a successful songwriter. It was writing for Jackie Wilson, you know, which is another one of the artists in the city that used to sing around a lot with Jackie Wilson, as well as Aretha Franklin, but she was doing more singing in her father's church as a teenager. But, you know, she was known throughout, you know, I can remember once uh, she was going to be at a church, a friend came by, he said, look, Aretha's going to be singing at the, some Baptist church. He said, well, let's go see her. We walked, about maybe six miles, you know, and to see her. And, uh, you know, he wanted to go, so I went with him and six miles back. When I look back, when I say, wow, that's a lot. But we were having fun talking and laughing and singing all the way, you know. So we went, you know, we went to this church, you know, to see Aretha Franklin. You know? She was just a kid, you know. Brian started the writing. I, I, I wasn't interested in writing in the slightest. Didn't have the slightest idea about it. I, I just wanted to sing because yeah. I found out that uh, Jackie Wilson uh, had made a quarter of a million dollars that year for singing. <laughs> and at the time, I was going to night school for accounting. And, uh, and I said, wow. And I looked and I saw that. I said, say, wow, I could do this. I said, you know, that's a lot of money, you know. So basically that's, that's what sparked my interest. But Brian always was dabbling with the, the piano. You know, he right, can expound right, right. on that. Well, yeah, I, um, I started, um, when I met Barry Gordy, I started uh, going to his place and, and started putting music to lyrics. Um, and um, I, I love to do that. I love the melodies, and I would play these melodies and and just write up to lyrics. I was not a lyricist, uh, but uh, but I just whatever lyrics he gave to me, or if someone a friend of mine had lyrics, I would try try to put melodies to them. You know. So then, so you met Barry Gordy, and then 
sort of, we want to say the rest is history, but we need to fill in a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. that well, he didn't tell you he was skipping school, too. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to tell that. That don't, that don't yeah. film me, no. Yeah. And my mother, my, <laughs> my mother. <laughs> Right, and my mother, my mother had to go over to Barry's a couple of times when she found out he wasn't in school, right. found out where he was, and he was over there doing the music thing. Well, you're in good company because I understand that happened a lot with Ben and Jerry, for Ben and Jerry. Oh, is that right? They seemed to come out of it. It wasn't always such a bad thing. Bad thing, right. No, no. Uh, I understand that you were first uh, working in a, in a little uh, office Hotsville, the Hotsville office? Hits, Hitsville. 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 Yeah, right. Well, it was hot. Hitsville. It was hot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, how long of a time did you spend there? Is that a, a long? Well, when you speak of how long a time, you mean writing songs in a particular spot? Yes. Oh, whatever it took to, to finish up or come up with songs. Yeah. But I mean, we. Was this a. Um, did you. Were you. Um, it was with Hitsville over a number of years, is what I'm wondering. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. And that we had that office for a long time. Yes. Yeah, but he started in uh, oh, in Ray's apartment. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Before, before. Well, yeah. I didn't think so. Yeah. We. I started writing songs with Barry's first wife back on Gladstone. Mm -hmm. Pingree. Pingree. Was it Pingree? It's yeah, Pingree. Pingree. When first started. Then we moved to Gladstone. Um, and then it mushroomed into Barry buying these buildings, the Hitsville building, and giving us an office down, downstairs there. And it wasn't so hot. No, not hot. No, no. It was air. <laughs> it was air conditioning. It was air conditioning. That's good. So, when you started writing, though, were is it my understanding? Am I is this correct that you were told about a particular recording artist? and then you would write a song for that person? Or were there songs that you had already written that they thought would be suitable for a particular singer? Or was it a little bit of both? A little bit of both, but mainly uh, they would have a designated artist that they wanted something, songs written for, mm -hmm. and we would write them. But we were writing so many songs at the time that we would have had a few left over, you know what I mean? And, um, mm -hmm. And if an artist came along, we would uh, give it to that particular artist. And how did you feel if you um, had it in your mind that you were writing a song for a particular person and then somebody else wound up recording it? Did, did that make any difference? In well, it wasn't. I hear where you're going with this. It wasn't quite that, that, that way. Uh, basically, uh, when, when, when Brian first started, he, he had that type of instruction because there was, wasn't that many artists there in the first place. So, But when Brian uh, teamed up with Lamont and then I entered the picture, uh, we would just write songs and whatever artists we felt fit those particular songs, that's what we would do the songs on. And in the process of writing the, the various different songs, if there were songs that didn't fit that artist, we would put them aside, and then other artists would come along and we would put it on them. Like the, like the song on the Four Tops, Baby I Need You Lovin', uh, was, it had set around for a couple years. Mm -hmm. And then before, you know, they said, well, the Four Tops is gonna sign here. Said, so do you have anything for them? Well, my interest at that time was not to, say, work on the Four Tops. 
But I said, you know, it's a song here that might work for them. So I listened to this. I said, I haven't finished writing it. So I listened to the track. I said, well, I'll write it. So I wrote it and got with uh, the four tops on that. Another song that was just sitting around collecting dust was uh, This So Heart of Mine that was done on the Isley Brothers, you know. So in the process of writing for whoever we had in mind, there were various different songs that didn't fit. And uh, they just put, they were just put aside and somebody came along, we could use them on then you know, that's basically what we did. One of the things I'm interested in, may I interject? Absolutely. I'm having fun listening to you. Yeah. <laughs> is uh, the threesome of songwriting. You really were the ones who pioneered that concept. There were really a whole lot before that time, and certainly not in rock and roll in the early days of uh, Motown and, and soul uh, songwriting. Mm -hmm. Was that a challenge for you guys, or did you just didn't know any difference? So well, that's how you did it. No, it was by design, mm. first of all. Uh, again, Bryant and Lamont were writing together. Bryant, at, uh, at the tender age of 1920, had already had enough money to buy his first Cadillac, because that's what everybody wanted, especially a young boy at that time. You know, and, uh, and he was already making money. I, as a singer, you know, had some mild success, you know, on a, a pop top 30, you know, on a record called Jamie. Which, which we didn't write, Barrett Strong wrote it. And uh, it was a question of economics where my recording bill was much higher than the income that was produced from these songs. And Brian's, uh, uh, Brian had a uh, reasonable enough, enough money that he had received from his endeavor of writing that, that sparked my interest that uh, maybe I was doing the, the, in the wrong part of the business. <laughs> and uh, so I made up in my mind that, you know, I think I want to learn how to write songs. I didn't have the slightest idea about writing songs. I took about two years to myself for a while trying to learn how, just to teach myself by going to anyone that I knew could write a poem, anyone that had any idea about poem structures, anyone that uh, he could even write a song, you know, I would talk to them about it, you know. Then I would practice writing lyrics and I would go to different people around me uh, and I would ask him, include my mother, you know, and ask him, well, read this and what does this lyric say to you? And then if they hesitated, they said, well, uh, what about this? I'm not sure. I think I said, okay, but never mind. So I would take <laughs> it back because I knew that the key was I had to write it plain enough that anybody reading it could understand exactly where I was going with it. And when they couldn't, I, I would take it back and, you know, and then I would start asking people because I realized that uh, it was very difficult for people to give you real tough criticism. It's, I sensed it, you know. So I would say, listen, I want you to look at this. I don't want you to tell me what you like about it. I said, because I already know what's good about it. I want you to tell me what's not good about it, in your opinion. So this is how I got people to start telling me that I would just keep working on, my, on the craft of trying to write. But I just, at that time, went to Brian because I noticed that Brian was really good on these melodies. I mean, I was just amazed. I had been coming to, this, to the uh, Motown office once and heard certain melodies he was 
he was playing, and I was just so taken with it. I just couldn't believe that he was playing this, you know. So I stepped, I didn't go inside the room, I just sort of stood outside and thought about it. I said, wow. I said, I say, man, he's good, he's really good, you know. And I couldn't believe it, you know, and he and Lamont, you know, they were doing a few things together. And then I got this idea, see, I went to Brian, I said, you know what, you and Lamont are very fast with melodies, and they were extremely quick and very critical, you know. But both of them were very quick in their, in their resolutions of chords and, and, and understanding the chords and understanding the, how to follow the patterns and the melodies and the music, what the dynamics of it all. So they both get together and they would just pump out a lot of melodies. And, but I noticed that lyrics was taking them a long time to do lyrics. And I say, well, Brian, I said, listen, what if you got, you and Lamont did the melodies and I did the lyric. I said, you would be able to put out product at a much, much faster rate. And I said, you could make uh, $30,000 this year. You know, you know, no, no, the, no the, first, the, first thing, the first thing I said, I said, you know, I was thinking of myself, I remember. I said, I can make $10,000 this year. For some reason, the $10,000 was, was sort of important to me only because on the bank certificates at that time, it was insured up to 10,000. So that became my magic number because I always created objects for myself. I always created goals. Every year I would create a goal and I would push it higher, you know, to meet. You know, that was just a habit of mine as a, as a young boy, you know. And uh, so I said, I can make $10,000 this year. And so Brian said, wow. He said, if you make 10, then that means we would make, I said, that's right. I said, that's right. He didn't quite, I don't think he quite believed it, but it sound interesting enough for him to say, okay, you know, so uh, this, this is what we did, you know. So Brian, what was your thought about that when he came to you? Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember, sure. I remember it well, yeah. I, um, I was happy to, to know that I could make more money than the, the actual 10000 he what he, he could make, you know. And uh, so we just got busy and started writing, pumping out songs, you know. Mm -hmm. did, you, did you welcome the idea of his thought about um, him writing the lyrics and speeding up the process? Absolutely. Yeah. I had no problem with clever. that. Mm -hmm. That's clever. Sure, I had no yeah. problem with that at all, you know. And I could see that it would work because mm -hmm. we, Lamont and I, did stumble like... Lamar would come up, he would write lyrics sometimes and come up with ideas. We both would come up with ideas, but we were stumbling trying to finish a song, you know. And uh, like when he, when he came with that idea, it was well worth it, mm -hmm. I, I believe, you know, at that time, you know. Would you mind saying a few words about Lamont, like how you guys first met and uh, what his strength is as a songwriter? Well, I met Lamont, um, first I, I knew his wife, Ann Dozier. She worked at Motown, um, and uh, she said, well, my, my husband, I think he's coming to Motown to write and produce records. I think uh, Barry's going to sign him. She said, I want you to meet him, you know. And I said, oh, fine, I was sure I would be more than happy to meet him, you know. And so he came, and um, he was down in the studio one day working on a song. I said, and I came down and I said, uh, man, that, that song sounds pretty good. I said, uh, let's kind of finish it up working on it together. And I asked him, did he have a bridge to it? 
He said, no, I don't have a bridge to it. I said, well, look, let's, let me see if I can put something else to it. And that's how it started, uh, right. with a song called Forever. And uh, we recorded that song on the Marvelettes and Marvin Gaye, I think. And uh, it was a cute little song, and that's how Lamont Doja and I got together. In my endeavor to learn how to write songs, Smokey is the person that I look to. And I remember writing, taking one of his songs uh, and writing it out and studying it and realizing, wow, there's no way I could write like this. There's no way, you know. I said, I have to find another way of doing it. I have to find another style, another approach. I said, because I, could, I don't think I could ever write the way he's writing. And I said, if I would learn it, it would take years. That's what I felt, you know. But uh, so I, that's what caused me to start developing another approach to it and just another way. And what I did basically was call on my understanding of what I was taught in school. Those classes of English, those classes of English literature that I did not like, that uh, I just did enough to get a C just to get by. But I, but I found out that I had picked up so much from these classes. I had picked up much more than I really knew that I had. And, and I could just say, and many times I say I would love to go back, you know, and but all the teachers were gone at the certain time. And thank these teachers. They have no idea what they have contributed to my life. Because then, and then because going back a little bit, uh, when I was sort of experimenting, learning how to write, I would tell Brian, I said, Brian, take this and show it to Barry. I said, but don't tell him that I wrote it because he know I can't write songs and he's gonna automatically look at it with a very critical idea, uh, I, 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 tell him you wrote it. But then when I knew that I had arrived, is when, when Brian said, well, I said, well, Brian, what did he say? He said, well, Brian, he said, this is good. You didn't write this, Brian. Oh. Janie wrote this. Now Janie, uh, at the time was Janie Brad Bradford, Bradford uh, who wrote uh, um, Money, Money mm -hmm. is that, She's one of the people that I marvel at her ability to write. I just marvel at her talent, you know. And when I would compare myself with her talent, it, to me it was, I, I wasn't even in, in the same class with her, you see. So when, when, when Brian came back with that message, I remember like it was yesterday, I was sitting at my grandmother's kitchen table, you know. I said, wow. I said, then that means I'm there now. <laughs> so once again, that was Brian and Eddie Holland, otherwise known as the Holland Brothers, otherwise known as Holland Dozier and Holland, <laughs> otherwise known as the Motown Sound. No doubt, no <laughs> doubt about it. And what great guys. I just, a little shout out to Evelyn Lipson, one of the volunteers of the Museum of Making Music here in Carlsbad, California, who allowed me the opportunity to hang out with the Holland brothers. Her son knew them or knows them. And so she was able to hook all that up. And I'll never forget her for that. That was a 2004. And as you can tell, the stories are still relevant, still a very important part of, uh, of American culture. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the podcast all about Motown. Um, this was part one, and part two will be coming out in two weeks from today. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Um, we talked about the history and songwriting today, and next episode for part two, 
we are going to be talking about um, playing music at Motown, the recording process, here's from a couple new faces, um, some producing and engineering, and the impacts of Motown and the Motown Museum. So make sure you tune in in two weeks for the conclusion to this episode. This has been fantastic fun. Special thanks to Michelle for uh, going through weeding all these interviews and coming up with all these gems. Thank you. Happy to help. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.